Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod, the sectarianism proxies and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Mayburn, and today I'm joined by Jacob Erickson, Altagir lecturer in post-war recovery studies at the University of York. Jacob's a good friend of mine. He's someone who appeared at Sepad Brisma's panels. He's the author of, of a number of books and articles looking at a range of different aspects of Middle Eastern politics. And I'm I'm really excited to talk to Jacob about how he brings all these things together from his early work on, on Israel-Palestine and diplomatic negotiations to a more contemporary bit of work on, on post-reconstruction, uh, post-war reconstruction Iraq. So Jacob, thank you so much for joining us today. The pleasure, Simon. Thank you for having me. Uh, the pleasure is ours, Jacob. I'm sure people are really excited to hear what you've got to say. So can you, uh, can you start by telling us a little bit about why you got interested in, in Middle Eastern politics then, please? Sure. Uh, for me, it started as an undergrad. Um, so I did my undergrad in London at King's. And uh, there, was, there was a lot going on uh, back when I was uh, an undergraduate in that uh, during my undergrad degree in, in war studies, we obviously had the, uh, uh, the invasion of Iraq. Um, and so, you know, the Middle East really became um, a prominent issue on the radar uh, and so i guess that's maybe where uh, my kind of initial interest in in the region began uh, but in terms of a, a kind of research entry it was um it was the israeli-palestinian conflict um that, that really grabbed me and of course during that time as well we obviously had the second intifada um you know that, that was going on and so um you know as part of my uh, war studies degree did a lot of work on uh, the Israel-Palestine conflict and, and Iraq. And, um, yeah, it, it really began for me with um, uh, my MA dissertation uh, in terms of, like, my serious research activity, um, an MA dissertation on uh, what I thought was the kind of lesser-known element of diplomacy in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which was um, a, a track two um, initiative uh, that was put together by the Swedish government. Uh, everyone knows all about Norwegian diplomatic involvement um, in, in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And I uh, came across um, a couple of different initiatives uh, that the Swedes had, had put together um, and did uh, MA work on that, uh, and that then turned into um, a PhD thesis um, that kind of charted uh, the history of, of Swedish engagement in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, uh, which has been, you know, very very long-standing from uh, from the kind of post um, World War II years onwards, um, and yeah, charted uh, charted this story, I guess. How Sweden had engaged, how Sweden kind of became a mediator, um, and uh, looked at a set of uh, negotiations uh, that had uh, been kind of launched initially uh, in 1988 to bring the US and, and the PLO together, um, and then a, a few later instances of, of Swedish engagement in the um, in the kind of Oslo process. Um, yeah, all all to try and tell. 
uh, a story that I thought was um, was underrepresented in the mm. kind of historical record on on the peace process, sure. and that's not just from the perspective of a Swede um, who was who was jealous that the Norwegians you know, really <laughs> made the big uh, you know breakthrough. I thought yeah. that this is this is actually um, you know a really interesting diplomatic story to to tell. Sure. So that, that, that later became your, your first book, Small State Mediation in International Conflicts, Diplomacy and Negotiation in Israel-Palestine, which was published by A.B. Taurus in 2015, right? Yeah, that's right. Perfect. So before we delve into that a little bit, Jake, what was it about Israel-Palestine that, that grabbed you? You said that that was the real, the real thing that caught your imagination. What was it about that that, that really caught your eye? Can you remember? So I mean, I had I had a long-standing interest in uh, um, what I guess I can describe as uh, Israel and the Jewish experience. Um, I uh, I've always been a history geek, and um, you know I've always had a very keen interest in kind of twentieth-century history in particular, and um, I did uh, a lot of work both and also university on different aspects of the Second World War. Um, and one of the things that, that really fascinated me in that whole historical period was the Holocaust. Um, and so I think the Holocaust was really my entry point, um, you know, to try and understand this, um, you know, this, this kind of monumental tragedy. Um, and... Yeah, I guess from that study of the Holocaust, trying to understand that particular period in history, um, drove me and gravitated me towards looking at a contemporary situation of of uh, uh, of Jews and um, you know of the Jewish state, um, and so yeah, it 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 has that historical route. I think it, it's really interesting to, to hear you speaking about that that historical side of things and and that certainly speaks to what your your book does and the historical roots of of small state mediation and, and the role of those small state mediators. So can you tell us a little bit about the 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 book and the arguments that you're presenting in the book please? Sure. So um one of the, I guess, one of the key questions that I'm looking at is, um, is what what is it that is particularly um, useful um, about small states and how they engage in in mediation and and conflict resolution? What is it that they do that is different? Um, and I think this was a question that was really. Um, prompted by the, the great Norwegian breakthrough with the Oslo Agreement. Um, when everyone was looking to the US for guidance, you had, um, you know, this, um, uh, this, this unexpected outcome coming from a mediator who didn't wield any particular leverage, um, you know, who didn't really have, uh, who didn't really have a dog in the fight, um, to, to use that expression, um, and so I think um, it, yeah, it looks at 
how small states engage, why small states become engaged um, in, in diplomacy and mediation. Um, and I guess it, it more broadly tries to explain what it is that small states can do differently, why that is beneficial, why it's important, um, but also, of course, acknowledging the, the limitations of small state engagement. Sure. Um, that there are certain things um, that, that small states are better equipped to do, like, for example, um, initiating dialogue, building trust, um, uh, you know, trying to uh, uh, to uh, engage in, if necessary, more uh, covert dialogue, you know, kind of secret dialogue when um, indeed relations between parties are so contested and so controversial and so sensitive that they can't have this dialogue publicly. Um, but, you know, I think one of the one of the things that we also have to acknowledge is that um, at some point or other, um, a powerful um, international player, um, normally a state, and in the Israeli-Palestinian case, the United States, um, will need to be involved at some point. But so one of the things that, that I've also tried to kind of sketch out in, in later research is what is the relationship between these different types of uh, mediation strategies and engagement, and and when uh, does either an actor or a set of actors need to engage in a particular set of mediation strategies in order to try and um, in order to try and deliver a, a positive outcome? Sure. Before we touch on the the role of the United States, and, and I want to talk a little bit about Trump, given that that you've written about about his his recent activities. Um, I, I'm going to brave, uh, bravely ask a question here, Jacob, and I hope that our friendship survives this question. Um, what was it that that meant that the Norwegian approach and Norwegian mediatory efforts were successful, while Swedish mediatory efforts failed? That's uh, a very good question. Um, it, I think, on the one hand. Had um, you had a different set of relationships uh, between uh, Swedish Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Swedish diplomats and the Palestinian um, body politic, the PLO. Sure. Um, and you had a very strong relationship um, between them based on the politics of kind of uh, solidarity, decolonization, the importance of international law um, that, that we saw Swedish social democratic governments, um, you know, chiefly um, Swedish Prime Minister Olaf Palme championing. Um, and you had, um, you had a type of engagement that was useful at a particular point in the conflict. Um, so the Palestinians always spoke about the Swedes with their kind of brokering of this opening of relations with the US and the PLO as, you know, their friends who opened them up to the world, who kind of made them um, a, a more legitimate international partner rather than solely being considered a, a terrorist group. And so I think, uh, you know, the Swedish foreign minister, Stian Andersson, played 
that role um, in an important way at an important time. Um, but that particular role also had ramifications for Sweden's relationship with Israel. Sure. Which um, was, uh, should I say, uh, tested by um, that particular relationship. Now, you know, from a Swedish perspective, um, you know, they would always say that that they had excellent relationships with both parties. Um, but uh, when we see uh, the Norwegians uh, engaging in, in 1993, to some extent, this was something that, that was difficult for the Swedes to do um, because uh, there were reservations, I think, for many on the Israeli side um, about Sweden as an interlocutor, not from all. Um, many of the Israeli doves, um, you know, were, were very, um, uh, very positive about the role that Sweden had played and, and positive about about Swedish engagement. Um, but Yitzhak Rabin, for example, um, you know, according to according to many people involved, couldn't stand Yanand Dushan as an individual and couldn't stand, um, you know, certain elements of of the Swedish Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Um, and the Norwegians had a different relationship, um, you know, with the two parties. But I think the the real difference, as I sketch out in the book, to me, the real difference that the Norwegians brought to the table was um, the energies of someone like Talia Rød Larsson, um, the ability to initially run the process through a think tank, and to have. Um, you know, a very close relationship between the think tank and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs that really enabled, at the same time, uh, NGO support for this process uh, sure. and to enable that kind of secrecy, while at the same time having the support of, um, you know, a Ministry of, of Foreign Affairs. So I think, you know, Terrier and, and the Norwegians really just played that role perfectly at the right time. Um, and it was... An engagement that um, you know, I think uh, Sweden later tried to emulate in a lot of its Track Two initiatives that that tried to kind of follow this this model of having a set of Track Two talks that were being um, uh, that were being sponsored and, and managed by an NGO, but that was simultaneously um, you know receiving and, and getting input from uh, you know the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So I think. Yeah, one of the things that I try and do as well in the book is to try and sketch out this relationship uh, between the, the different processes that were going on. Because, um, yeah, rather than viewing the Oslo process as something that, uh, you know, took place in a vacuum, one of the things I try and do is to contextualize it within that kind of broader set of diplomacy that was taking place at the time. Sure. Um, but, um, yeah, there's... There's no doubt about it that um, you know a number of Swedish diplomats who who I interviewed um, felt that the Norwegian success should have been the Swedish success. Well, um, I'm sorry for picking at that scab in in public, <laughs> Jacob, but uh, thank you no, for. No, no. For the transparency there, I think it's it's really fascinating, and and I do urge everyone to to read the book and and really get to grips with this story that Jacob tells so very well in it. So do do pick up a copy of the book, Jacob. I'd like to move on quickly to um to to Donald Trump, if I may, and 
We'll, we'll just touch on this briefly because I imagine that, that there's a degree of Trump fatigue going around scholars of international politics these days. Mm-hmm. But I, I wonder, um, you've got a couple of pieces recently, one in Middle East policy, one in the Review of International Studies, um, that, that touch on, on more contemporary dimensions. So I wonder if you can just say a little bit about the, the role of Donald Trump in all of um, all of this sort of diplomatic efforts, the the, um, the ongoing struggle post-Oslo between the Israelis and the Palestinians? Sure. Um, look, I think Trump is, uh, but for better or worse, um, personally, I think for the worse, uh, but I hope I'm wrong. Uh, you know, Trump is, is, uh, is certainly shaking things up. Um, you know he's trying to to upend what he sees to be certain stale, um, you know, understandings within the conflict. Um, I I don't agree his seeming analysis and his administration's seeming analysis of of kind of exactly what uh, what the issue is, um, and I think that. Um, I think that ultimately he might be shaking things up, but he's not doing so with a coherent plan um, to to actually try and and you know create a, create a different set of, of relationships. I think he's he's destroying a lot of things um, without uh, without a clear you know vision of, of of what he wants to try and create in its stead, sure. um, or if indeed there is you know kind of a vision. As far as I can see, it's it's one that um, is is all about uh, you know perpetuated occupation, um, and you know very rapidly hurtling towards um, you know a, a, a cementing of this uh, of the kind of current one state reality, um, but you know a one state reality that doesn't include um, you know kind of equal rights for for Palestinians. Yeah. Um, so look, I, I'm. In, in in my pieces, you know, I'm, I'm very critical of of the Trump administration. I think, I think they're handling this uh, poorly. Um, I don't think they're engaging in astute diplomacy. Um, I think, for all of their talk of uh, novel approaches, um, they're they're just rehashing a lot of things that have been done before. Um, in the case of you know, in the case of the economic plans. Um, as, as plenty of other commentators have noted, there were plenty of economic dimensions to the peace plan, uh, you know, kind of in, in Oslo and the Oslo process. You had various different economic conferences in places like Barcelona and elsewhere. Um, so, so the economic dimension has, has been on the radar for a long time. That's not anything new. Similarly, you know, with, uh, with all of the talk, you know, about autonomy rather than uh, a, a Palestinian state. This is, to me, this just kind of harks back to to the type of autonomy plans um, that you saw being bandied about in the kind of seventies uh, and and eighties in the context of of the Camp David process between the Egyptians and the Israelis, which incidentally, Stefan um, Ziska's uh, new book, Preventing Palestine, does a really really good job of of, of explaining. Um, and so, I I personally am not at all convinced by this idea that there is necessarily anything novel in in Trump's approach. Um, and 
like I say, I I hope I'm wrong, but uh, don't don't see the administration uh, engaging in the type of diplomacy that is actually going to yield any type of positive outcome. Sure. Because it is completely it's completely one sided engagement. Well, I'll, I'll be sure to share uh, links to your articles alongside the podcast so people can, can read about your thoughts on this and, and, and the Israeli-Palestinian questions in more detail than, than we have time for. That's Jacob. Great. Very um, grateful. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. I, I want to do a very swift change of pace and change of topic. And I want mm. to move to Iraq. Yes. And I'd like to do that by starting with a question about why the shift in uh, research trajectory to looking at Iraq? Yeah, it's uh, it's not necessarily an obvious um, <laughs> yeah. change, I appreciate. Um, but I think um, one of the things that, uh, that, as I mentioned, in terms of my own, you know, personal background and engagement in the region, um, you know, Iraq was, was another key entry point. Um, it wasn't necessarily my initial research focus, sure. but I've been following Iraq very keenly. Um, you know, as 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 someone who grew up uh, during the, the Iraq War, as as a very kind of formative, um, yeah, as as a, as a formative experience. Um, and I think uh, you know that I kind of situate um, the conflicts, the ongoing kind of conflicts. In Iraq, um, within that broader uh, framework of, of kind of peace building, I guess, um, you know, while a lot of my work on uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has to do more specifically with the kind of mediation and, and conflict resolution processes, um, I think I'm I'm just engaging in a slightly different set of uh, peace building uh, issues um, in in the Iraqi context. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it, a lot of, a lot of my Iraq engagement, um, also stems from, from, uh, personal relationships with, um, you know, Iraqi friends who have been, um, yeah, who have obviously been, you know, very, uh, very intimately and, and very personally affected, um, you know, by uh, the conflict dynamics. Um, and so in a sense, yeah, my, my Iraq work was a kind of coming together of, of years of, of personal interest of uh, yeah my my broader uh, interest in the region and uh, a number of the the things that I've been teaching for many years and um these these personal relationships sure. so so let's delve deeper into to what you've done with Iraq then if I may and uh, I mean my first uh, when I first became aware of your your shift was a workshop that you organized and kindly invited me to where you were looking at Iraq, and it, it later became this edited collection uh, that that's that's titled "Iraq After ISIS: The Challenges of Post-War Recovery." So mm. that was a really fascinating workshop that that brought together a range of different people from different backgrounds, and and the book's wonderful. Uh, Thanks. Not least due to your contribution. No, I was about to say aside from my own chapter, but um, <laughs> I wonder, can you just say a little bit about what you sought to achieve with the workshop and the the edited collection? Sure. So this was um, this was an initiative that uh, that I put together together with um, one of my um, Iraqi friends and colleague, uh, Dr. Ahmad Khalil, um, who's who's also here at the University of York. Um, and I guess um, 
I guess I'll, I'll speak for myself uh, rather than speaking for Ahmad. But, um, you know, I think um, we both had sense that this was a really important kind of moment for Iraq and for uh, the Iraqi people, for the Iraqi political system, um, in that uh, there was, yes, a possibility um, to do something different, to, mm. to kind of engage in a different type of, um, you know, Iraqi politics, as it were, and a different type of Iraqi post-war recovery. Because I think one of the things that um, we've seen uh, over... Uh, the years post-2003 is that um, uh, the the different processes of, say, state building, uh, you know, security sector reform, transitional justice, reconciliation, all of those uh, processes that we see as, as integral to the process of post-war recovery um, were, uh, put it this way, were not done in a manner that that really I think contributed to you know the key goals of uh, peace building and sure. of, of bringing uh, you know divided communities together. Um, I think uh, there was there was a lot to be desired uh, in terms of how those processes were were executed. Um, and so I think yeah, it, it came from from a desire to to try and learn from from what had come before uh, and to try and um, yeah, put put together whatever modest advice um, you know we we can to try and improve on these um, you know previous efforts and to try and avoid um, the uh, the return of of a kind of cycle and, and spiral of, of violence to try and break out of that conflict trap. I think that's a really good way of putting it. This idea of a cycle of violence and a conflict trap that that Iraq and and other states can very easily fall into after experiencing such a long process of, of violence. And, Absolutely. And it, it's quite interesting what you've done beyond that as well. I mean, your your talk at Brismas was was wonderful in, in trying to set up some of these themes and trying to reflect on, on escaping that trap in different ways. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it. Um, I think it's it's one of the areas where... Again, you know, I think I I bring my kind of educational experience um, into into these issues. Um, you know, sometimes when when you're in academia, as as we are, and a number of our colleagues are, you sometimes find yourself um, put in a particular discipline and say, "Well, I am in a politics uh, department." Um, but I've, I've kind of always thought, and I think I was always taught, um, in the context of something like war studies or peace and conflict studies, that we need, we need lots of kind of disciplinary inputs to understand, um, to understand conflict sure, and, and to understand yeah. peace. And that's everything from, um, you know, obviously the, the political side of things, but, um, uh, the social side of things, the psychological side of things, uh, you know, the, um, the economic side of things uh, that you know to, to understand these issues, um, yeah, you, you need to approach them from 
uh, a number of different perspectives. Um, and yeah, I think that's something that um, I think is really key and, and crucial, um, particularly when, yeah, we try and understand, you know, divided communities. Um, how do divided communities and communities who have experienced violence understand their particular situation? Um, you know, why that has occurred and, and how a different path can, can kind of be charted. And um, yeah, I think that's that's something that um, that I always try and bring into my, my work and analysis um, to try and, and understand things from, uh, I guess, a more human perspective. And that's certainly commendable, and I applaud you for, for doing that. Not only the, the human perspective is... As many uh, scholars of international politics and, and political scientists are, I think, guilty of ignoring the human, ignoring agency. So it's certainly commendable to do that, but also recognize the, the complexities of conflict that transcend these disciplinary boundaries. I think it's incredibly important that we recognize that, trying to move beyond these uh, these conflict traps, as you so nicely put it. This is it. And, and I think, you know, one of the things that... Um that I certainly try and, and teach my students and, and I try and be aware of when we kind of analyze conflict is, um, yeah, that, or I guess the need to beware of a very kind of simplistic and, and reductionist relationship between, um, yeah, for example, something like um, identity and conflict or the relationship between, um, you know, a, a, a particular governance system and uh, conflict. Um, you know, I think uh, it is, yeah, it's it's all about acknowledging that complexity. Um, and I guess the challenge is acknowledging that complexity and at the same time um, trying to trying to come up with with something useful. Yeah. To, to suggest in terms of how um, you know these issues can either be approached more broadly or 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 how um, different approaches might might be able to address uh, you know particular ongoing challenges. Sure. Um, I guess we always have that that difficulty of on the one hand really getting into the weeds and the details of a particular case um, and a particular context, and at the same time trying to zoom out and say, what broader kind of theoretical things can we take away from this? Jacob, we've taken up a lot of your time, but I have one question left, if I may. Of course. And it, it relates directly to what you've just said about lessons that you can take away from things. I, I wonder, you've got these two fascinating, yet, yet seemingly distinct trajectories of research. I wonder, what lessons have you taken from your work on Israel-Palestine that are applicable to the Iraq case, and, and perhaps vice versa? That is a very difficult uh, <laughs> Sorry. question. No, no, no. Um, uh, it's, it's an excellent question. Um, I, think, um, I think in both cases, um, we need to... We need to listen to, um, you know, we need to listen to, to the people 
involved in the conflict. We need to listen to the communities um, that that are involved. Uh, I think that is the the fundamental starting point of any type of um, peace building or, or conflict resolution process. Um, and uh, as as I kind of alluded to, I think it's unfortunate that um, certain actors who engage in or at least seem to be engaging in some type of uh, conflict management or conflict resolution process don't do that. Um, Trump administration and the Palestinians, for example. Um, I think, um, yeah, so I think listening uh, is is a key element, trying to understand um, the, the, the concerns and the grievances that, that communities and individuals have. Um, and I guess this is also something that I feel very keenly as an outsider, as I'm often reminded um, by people uh, that you know I am I'm a Swede. I am uh, you know from a different um, you know kind of cultural and 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 kind of political context and, and background. Um, I've always been very keenly aware that, you know, I'm, I'm trying to understand, um, you know, different communities and, uh, I do often, uh, uh, get the, the suggestion, particularly when, when I'm in Israel that, well, you know, you don't understand because, you know, kind of you, you haven't come from, from this particular neighborhood. Um, yeah. but I guess I remain, uh, optimistic that there is something that um, an external, perhaps slightly more detached um, analytical perspective uh, can can add. Um, And I hope uh, that that's something that um, that, um, you know, myself and and other uh, colleagues in the West looking at uh, conflict in the Middle East uh, can able to can be able to do, but to do so with the, um, I guess, with the humility and uh, the, the kind of cognizance, much as we might have certain ideas and and we might be able to provide certain bits of advice and assistance, um, it's it's the communities that, that need to do it. Um, you know, no one no one can do it for them, uh, and I think. Uh, in in both of these cases, um, you know, Israel, Palestine, and Iraq, um, for the international community, um, you know, I think the the, the challenge, um, and I say international community, not just you know the kind of diplomatic community, but I think also us as as academics, um, how we can best support our local friends and and colleagues and and partners um, to uh, uh, yeah, to, to try and try and achieve, um, you know, kind of more more peaceful outcomes, and and to try and build something positive. Um, sure. So you know, I think we yeah. are we are we are part of that process, but at the same time, you know, we can't we can't drive that process externally because there are more than enough examples of of that type of externally driven process, mm. um, you know, that that uh, that just don't work. Certainly. 
Well, Jacob, on that that sage note, I think uh, we've taken up so much of your time. We should wrap this up, but thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure and really fascinating to to speak to you about about all of these things. So thank you for joining us. It's been it's been wonderful. Pleasure is all mine. Thanks again for having me. Pleasure, and, Jacob. Um, good luck with the uh, good luck with the project. Thank you very much. Until next time. Thanks for listening.